1: As we go on the air this morning, the New York Times is reporting that the death toll from COVID-19 is expected to be upwards of 140,000 by the 4th of July. This morning, more than 115,000 have died from the deadly virus as the nation continues to reopen since the national lockdown back in March. In other health care news this morning, former CMS official Matthew Albright has the Monitor Money legislative update. Health care attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business. Alan Fink-Sandrick has the latest news concerning the social determinants of health, along with the Monitor Money listener survey. Health care attorney Nicole Emanuel has a Monitor Monday Rack report. Dr. John K. Hall reports our lead story this morning on post-pandemic claim denials. And we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Well, good
2: morning, all. Well, we are two weeks away from the start of the Medicare prior authorization program and two days away from the day that the MACs are required to start accepting requests. As a reminder, five procedure classes will need prior authorization. Blepharoplasty, Botox injections in the face, paniculectomy, rhinoplasty, and vein ablation. Now, this is only for outpatient procedures done in the hospital outpatient department. The max will have 10 business days to review the documentation and provide a response. Once they review it, they will either give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Now, in usual CMS fashion, they won't call it an approval. They'll call it an affirmation. Why is that? Well, maybe because if they call it an approval, then they'll have to pay it. But if they call it an affirmation, then they still have the ability to audit the claims retroactively and deny them. Now, they claim that that these procedures will not be routinely selected for audit, but they'll be watching data and can selectively audit if they find aberrations. It's in the hospital's, uh, excuse me, it is the hospital's responsibility to obtain the prior authorization. And of course, you can't do that unless the physician provides you with the medical records. But if you're smart, you won't let the doctor schedule the procedure unless the prior authorization is obtained. But just in case you have one of those doctors, CMS has now confirmed that if there's no affirmation for the procedure, the hospital won't get paid and any associated physician claims will also be denied. And if the physician claim gets denied, they have to appeal themselves. Now, I'm certain that anesthesiologists will not be happy if they don't get paid because the surgeon would not provide medical records to the hospital. Now, does this program actually make sense? Well, CMS has said it's going to cost them $7.4 million to administer the program to review 120,000 procedures that are performed each year with total payments of $115 million. What that means is that they have to deny at least 6.5% of all requests in order for Medicare to save money. That's a pretty high hurdle. But aside from the money, I do have a problem with this program. It's a nationwide program, but it relies on the local decisions of the MACs. And if you put their medical necessity standards next to each other, there are significant differences. Take paniculectomy. Boy, that word just gets me every time. Uh, This is commonly performed after bariatric surgery when patients lose significant weight. Now, Palmetto will not approve the procedure unless 18 months have passed since the bariatric surgery. But Novitas won't approve it for 24 months. And Novitas also requires the BMI to be less than 35. By the way, that BMI requirement is not even in their own LCD. They just made it up and stuck it on their webpage. So if your health system covers multiple MACs, you better check each MACs requirements carefully. It's going to be an interesting few weeks as this program gets rolling. Some Macs seem prepared and they've been holding webinars, and there's others like CGS that has a web page that just basically says, coming soon. I'm counting on all of you to pass on your stories to me. Thanks,
1: Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday round here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday's RAC report is Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole.
3: Good morning and happy RAC Monitor Monday. Being nice can get you in trouble. But as David and Ron and I have said over and over, being nice and putting patient care first should be the excuse during this COVID pandemic for future RAC and MAC audits. We believe that when you err, or if you err, err on the side of the patient because the denial Armageddon is coming. I have an ENT doc who routinely writes off Medicare co not because she's a criminal, but because she lives in rural Idaho and has a big heart. However, Medicare will accuse you of crimes if you routinely write off copays. If you're going to make money with skills in nursing, then you have to watch the financial trends, which will demonstrate your need to accept Medicaid. You could choose to only accept Medicare, but your financial charts would look like a person on life support, up and down. Medicare pays for nursing home care for its beneficiaries, but only pays the full amount for 20 days. For the 80 days following, Medicare will pay for 80% of the cost. After 100 days, Medicare doesn't pay for nursing home care at all. Medicaid, on the other hand, will pay 100%. However, in order to get Medicaid to pay for you, you have to have a monthly income under approximately $2,000. And unless there's a medical need for a private room in a nursing home, Medicaid will pay for a shared room only. Well, since COVID, how many people have requested solo rooms? I know I would. Some states allow family supplementation, which allows family members to supplement the payment in order to upgrade their loved ones to a private room. Other states consider family supplementation to be a gift and may disqualify the individual for Medicaid. For its part, the skilled nursing industry continues to face operating headwinds such as increased regulatory requirements, expenses and staffing pressures, and reimbursement challenges from RAC or MAC audits. One of the biggest changes in recent years has come in the shift away from traditional Medicare reimbursement, or fee-for-service, toward privately managed plans, or MA plans, which pay for managed healthcare based on a monthly fee per enrollee. As reported by the CDC and Kaiser, the growth in patients is coupled with an all-time low. In North Carolina, for example, a private room is a daily cost of 252, whereas in New York, a daily private room costs $406. According to the new COVID rules, expanded ability for hospitals to offer long-term care services or swing beds for patients who do not require acute care, but do meet the skilled nursing facility or SNF level of criteria, as set forth in 42 CFR 409.31. The criteria is that you cannot use those SNF beds for acute level care. You must comply with all other hospital conditions of participation. And those SNF provisions set out at 42 CFR 482.58 to the extent not waived. And you also have to be consistent with the state emergency preparedness or pandemic plan.
1: Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was health attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the Potomac Law Group. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Alan Fink-Samnick, Matthew Albright, and Dr. John K. Hall, who's standing by to report our lead story. This is Monday, it's June 15, 2020, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by.
0: With nationally recognized consultants and state-of-the-art technology, Panacea Healthcare provides auditing services for inpatient, outpatient, physician, pharmacy, revenue integrity, and documentation. Panacea also provides auditing services for specialties, including interventional radiology, E&M coding, surgery, and more, to help you meet your auditing and compliance goals. From finding lost revenue to capturing all charges and ensuring compliance and data integrity, you'll be confident that Panacea is focusing on the important risks and opportunities. Here's more good news for your organization. Panacea can electronically audit 100% of your claims or encounters within minutes, revealing those claims with the highest probability for a coding, compliance, data integrity, revenue risk, or opportunity. And for a nominal fee, Panacea will process your claims and provide a diagnostic review. That's the Panacea Difference. To learn more, call 866 926 5933. That number again, 866 926 5933. Or click the button on the screen to request information.
1: Here now with a Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is Healthcare Attorney David Glazer. And as we say every Monday, David, what could be risky? This morning, Good morning, Chuck. So first, I just want to comment on Ron's segment
4: and note that if you ever get a claim denied because of someone else's mistake, that's a perfect time to use the argument that Medicare can't deny your claims if you're without fault. So last week, I was speaking with one of my colleagues who specializes in reviewing and negotiating agreements with third-party payers, and she lamented that no one reads their provider agreements uh, anymore. As uh, Dr. Hall would comment, that might be because they're so darn big. So I definitely fear she's right. Reading a provider contract is not exactly a hoot. Uh, And if you combine that with the fact that many payers have convinced people that the contract is take it or leave it, and we have a world where it's quite common to sign payer agreements without any review whatsoever. But if you listen to segments by Dr. Hirsch, Nicole Emanuel, and other Monitor Monday panelists, you've likely noticed a pattern. Third-party payer contracts truly matter. Taking a step back, it's good to remember that insurance companies do not have some divine right to impose their own definitions on you. They aren't inherently authorized to define the term inpatient, whether it's using or rejecting the two-midnight rule. With very limited exceptions, nothing in any federal or state law requires third-party insurers to establish payment rules that mimic or differ from those imposed by Medicare or other insurance companies. The main exception is Medicare Advantage plans may not impose a rule that's less generous to beneficiaries than Medicare. In most other situations, whatever the payer is doing, it's doing it by choice. I realize that there are times where variation from Medicare is beneficial to you, but even those beneficial situations come with the administrative burden of trying to implement disparate rules. Whether the payer's rules are helpful or not, you need to know what they are. Some of the more frustrating legal problems I've dealt with involve situations where my client had failed to read the contract and didn't ask us to review it. Uh, One example is totally unrelated to third-party payer contracts, but it's instructive. So I've had many clients sign ambulatory surgical center management contracts without careful review. Then, when they become frustrated with the operation of the management company, they seek to exit the agreement only to discover that the contract renders that nearly impossible. Returning to the third-party payer situation, I've had a client build an ambulatory surgical center only to discover their biggest private insurer required prior approval before paying any claims at a new location. The insurer refused to credential the new ASC. That was an expensive mistake. Sometimes the unread terms even prove favorable to clients. I had one client prepared to refund hundreds of thousands of dollars to a private insurer for six years of overpayment. But they had not noticed that under the agreement, the insurer was only allowed to reopen claims for 12 months, a term that's pretty common, actually. The insurer was seeking six times the money to which they were entitled. The bottom line is that in many disputes, are won or lost well before the first demand letter is written. In the world of private insurance, the contract controls. If you're not paying attention when the rules are established, you're missing your best opportunity to make sure that you are treated fairly. I've never used the hold music for a song, but I was recently asked to join the board for the Association for Healthcare Denials and Appeals Management, a group that listeners might be interested. The acronym is AHDAM, and if you think about that one for a moment, it's rather fun. If you want more information, google it. In any event, before a board meeting, the whole music was Bob Marley's Get Up, Stand Up, Stand Up For Your Right. It's a message highly applicable in any third-party payer negotiation, and life in general.
1: Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, don't give up the fight.
4: Chuck, back to you.
1: Thanks, David, very much. That was Healthcare Attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Frederickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink Samnick. Alan also has the Modern Money Lister Survey. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck,
5: and good Monday,
1: all. The realities of the pandemic continue to invade society
5: focused attention on the dramatic virus's impact on racial and ethnic minorities, underserved populations, and their communities. This theme was validated at last week's RISE Virtual Social Determinants of Health Summit. I was honored to co-chair this important event, plus moderate several panels of SDOH experts from healthcare organizations, CBOs, payers, product developers, and consumers, all committed to efforts that advance strategic initiatives, funding, and collaborative partnerships in tackling the SDOH. In the meantime, frightening facts continue to reflect the COVID and SDOH intersection. African Americans dying at nearly three times the rate of white Americans. In 42 states plus Washington, D.C., Latinx comprise a greater share of confirmed cases than their share of the population, in eight states over four times greater. Black COVID-19 patients almost three times more likely of being admitted to the hospital compared to non-Hispanic white patients. The virus assault on Native Americans ongoing. Over 30% of coronavirus cases in some states. Some 20.5 million persons currently lack health insurance. The numbers rising with over 40 million people unemployed, over 17 million to be added to Medicaid rosters alone. Why are these populations so heavily impacted by the virus, and what's the impact for future public health emergencies? Centene, the National Minority Quality Forum, Quest Diagnostics, plus other public and private entities are partnering to learn how and why the pandemic impacts communities of color. The Minority and Rural Health Coronavirus Study will offer free diagnostic and antibody testing across five states through Quest starting later this month. Testing will be available to the public free of charge, with testing sites pre-identified based on specific demographic characteristics. These include a high proportion of African-American deaths in proportion to the overall state population, plus the presence of communities of color disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. 5,000 racial and ethnic minority volunteers will be tracked over five years, The goal, to monitor long-term effects of COVID-19 on their lives. Persons testing COVID positive will receive monitoring kits, daily calls from providers for 14 days, medical advice, help to monitor symptoms progression, and once-per-week calls for one month. Researchers and academics will analyze and translate survey responses to valuable data. Their goal is ambitious, though critical use the data to develop evidence-based solutions that inform the public health response to reduce healthcare disparities among underserved populations. The impact? Well, time will tell. Today's Monitor Monday survey, sponsored by the American College of Physician Advisors, wants your perspective on the value of this initiative. How would data from the surveillance and tracking of COVID-19 patients most benefit your organization. A, dedicated funding for data-identified underserved communities. B, increased funding for new programs in data-identified underserved communities like federally qualified health centers or safety net hospitals. C, increased reimbursement for all healthcare organizations through payers or maybe one of these days through those ICD-10-CMZ codes. D, Dedicated Funding for Public Health Initiatives. We will find out in a bit. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Ellen. That was consultant and author Alan fickson and Ellen said we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with our legislative update.
0: The Monitor Monday legislative update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Cellus. Zealous is a market-leading provider of claims cost and payment optimization solutions to price, pay, and explain health care claims. Here now is Matthew Albright.
6: Chuck, it looks like Congress has come to an agreement on when they plan on disagreeing. They're coming to an informal, even bipartisan agreement on their legislative calendar for the next six months. For June, the House and Senate both have a full agenda, including a set of appropriations bills, the annual defense authorization bill, and police reform. Further, a fourth congressional package on COVID-19 is almost a guarantee now. There's general consensus that it should be passed in July before the August recess when lawmakers will take a break for pretty much the whole month through to mid-September. We have many miles to go, however, before Congress agrees on what will be in the package. For some, the bill is being measured by how big it should be. For example, the White House last week said that the president was looking for something in the range of $2 trillion for the new stimulus package. That's a trillion less than the $3 trillion price tag for the HEROES Act, the COVID-19 package that the Democrat-led House passed in mid-May, but it's probably a trillion dollars more than what the Republican-led Senate could stomach under Mitch McConnell, who would like to see something around $1 trillion in the package. Uh, parenthetical here, can you believe we're talking about these numbers? The Republican tendency towards less is more in the stimulus bill is also evident in the GOP's 2020 campaign platform, which they voted to keep unchanged from the last presidential election. The Republican platform urges that, quote, the huge increase in the national debt demanded by and incurred during the current administration has placed a significant burden on future generations, end quote. Besides the money that's in the stimulus package, of course, there also has to be agreement on the issues. So let's go through a few. As we've talked about on this program, the Republicans want to see some kind of liability protection for businesses, including health care facilities and health offices, so that there's less of a risk to both employees and employers when they attempt to reopen currently osha has produced guidance or recommendations but no real required standards that would give evidence that a worksite is safe to reopen amidst the pandemic republicans want to see some protections and democrats are now signaling that they'd be willing to discuss the white house has expressed desire for a payroll tax cut bringing manufacturing jobs back to the states, and another stimulus check to American families. While the Democrats, for their part, have a whole menu of issues they've already put forward in that HEROES Act. Most significantly, significant funding for state and local governments, which are reeling from the cost of COVID-19. Assuming this passage does get passed before August, when Congress comes back in September, Let's talk about what's being called recovery packages in order to jump start the economy, including a, a well-talked-about infrastructure bill. And Chuck, those few months before the election would provide rich soil for an infrastructure package, just in time both for a country that will need to make up for lost jobs and for politicians that need something meaty for the last of their campaign speeches. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Matthew. Very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the chief legislative affairs officer for Zealous. What's looming large on the audit horizon? Dr. John K. Hall knows the answer. And he's going to join us in 60 seconds. This is Monitor Monday. It's a broadcast service of Rack
0: Monitor. Stand by. <laughs> Are you searching for an online learning center that's accessible to your team anytime, anywhere? Imagine a convenient, centralized source of information for those involved with coding, CDI, reimbursement, and compliance. Search no more. Introducing the MedLearn Media Resource Center. This single source allows your team to access news and information from Rack Monitor, ICD 10 Monitor, and MedLearn Publishing. At the MedLearn Resource Center, you'll find webcasts, podcasts, ebooks, coding charts, and premium news content accessible from any location, anytime, on any device for one affordable price. The MedLearn Media Resource Center, a centralized online learning hub, will keep your team current and compliant. For a no obligation quote call 800-252-1578 extension 2. Call today 800-252-1578 extension 2. Joining us now is Dr. John K.
1: Hall, who reports our lead story about audits and claim denials related to COVID-19 patient care. And good morning, Dr. Hall. Welcome back. And these types of audits and denials are looming large on the horizon, are they not?
7: Thanks, Chuck. And yes, I am expecting them to loom large. By now, we've all heard the words, anyone who wants a COVID test can have one. Occasionally, that claim is followed by the word free or no copay or deductible. Such statements make great news but it leaves me wondering where's the catch. A public health reason to screen as many people as possible does not automatically translate into requiring the provision of free services. Statements and assurances from payers, including CMS, leave me wondering, what's the catch? For the past two months, I've been trying to identify denial risks associated with COVID care and stay ahead of them. Patient status is our obvious denial. Hospitals are already receiving denials for inpatient stays with COVID as a diagnosis. In many cases, these denials are completely consistent with the terms of the provider's contract. Initially, COVID was a near-complete unknown for providers in the U.S. The spectrum of disease and clinical course was uncertain, and the at-risk population could arguably include a large part of the public, perhaps even a majority of the people in the United States. In this context, a general approach to admitting every suspected COVID patient may not seem unreasonable. It's becoming clear that that seems unreasonable to many payers. Absent a reasonable expectation of a two midnight stay, it will likely seem unreasonable to CMS as well. For this reason, my first area of concern is inpatient stays that lack documentation of medical necessity consistent with payer requirements in that extensive contract we already heard about. My next area of concern relates to telehealth services. CMS issued an interim final rule that greatly expanded available telehealth services. Many providers transition smoothly to a telehealth platform. My concern is the ability to demonstrate medical necessity and a patient benefit. This will raise the question of when does a service that might be worth less become worthless? Providers should begin assessing the impact of a more global shift to telehealth after the pandemic. To prepare for this, I recommend that all providers have a comprehensive assessment of operational impact and costs associated with the delivery of telehealth services Rather than simply rely on a line item in their charge master. My final concern regarding telehealth is documentation. Login and logout times serve as an absolute maximum duration for any encounter. As an example, a telehealth visit with login logout times exactly thirty minutes apart may serve as the basis of denial for time based services. Some denials will be very quirky. In FAQs, CMS has noted that COVID diagnostic studies are covered for, this is a quote, evaluation of a beneficiary for purposes of determining the need for such product, such as X-ray. But CMS also notes that X-rays are not covered except as a COVID screening tool. Thus, if the X-ray is ordered after the COVID test, it may be denied as unnecessary for COVID screening. We should prepare for such absurd outcomes. My final concern relates to claims requiring PHE-specific documentation. Transfers to skilled nursing without a three-day acute care stay are covered if the provider documents that transfer is a result of the effect of the PHE. Without encouragement, such documentation may be very hard to come by. Thanks, and back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks very much, Dr. Hall. That was Dr. John K. Hall. Dr. Hall is the founder of the GS firm. And you can read his reporting on this very important issue on our homepage at Rack Monitor this week. And now's the time for the results of the Monitor Money listener survey. Once again, here's Alan. Thank you, Chuck. Well, how would
5: data from the surveillance and tracking of COVID-19 patients most benefit your organization? No real surprises. The top response, far none, was increased reimbursement for all healthcare organizations whether through payers or ICD-10-CM codes, number C, with 35% of respondents. The next dedicated funding to public health initiatives came in next to 25%. Increased funding for new programs in data-identified underserved communities at 20%, and finally dedicated funding for data-identified underserved communities, 19%. We will have to see over the next five years where at least this initiative specifically goes, but uh, we can see other money and other initiatives coming down the pike. Chuck,
1: back to you. Thank you very much, Alan. That's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, David Glitz, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Alan Frank Sandrich, whom you just heard, and Dr. John K. Hall, who reported our lead story. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Shelter in place.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.